After the mammogram, within 24 hours, maybe 48 hours, I got a call that said that I needed a biopsy. And right then something inside me told me that it was cancer. And then when the um, results came back, I was just a little bit hysterical. I couldn't stop crying um, because I was scared. Some of the things going through my mind was my kids, they were teenagers at the time. So um, not knowing if what I was going to go through, how that was going to affect them later in life. So my gosh, it's been 11 years and I still cry every time I talk about it. It feels like a death sentence. It feels like your life is over in that moment. And until you go through it, you don't realize that it's not necessarily a death sentence, but you also, um, it's hard not to let it define you as well. Yes, going through the cancer, for lack of better words, it sucked. It sucked and it sucked the life out of me during that time. But if I had to do it all over again, I would have done the exact same thing because I caught it early. And so if it's time for you to get your mammogram, get your mammogram. I cannot stress it enough. I can't. Welcome back to Until It's Fixed, where we take an inside look at pressing topics in the healthcare industry new approaches to care, and how to make the health system work better for all of us. I'm Stacy Dove. And I'm Callie Chamberlain. Today we'll be talking about the importance of cancer screening prevention and patient advocacy. In our show opening, you heard from an Optum employee named Trisha about her experience with cancer. We are so glad she's okay today, but stories like this are the ones that really hit you hard. According to the National Cancer Institute, nearly 40% or 4 in 10 people will be diagnosed with some form of cancer in their lifetime. So just to bring that home, every day in the U.S., nearly 5,000 people receive a cancer diagnosis. Cancer could touch us all, either personally or through a loved one. And we're learning that during the pandemic, more than one-third of Americans missed cancer screenings last year because of COVID-19. So to put that into perspective... We've got 1 million fewer mammograms, colorectal, and cervical cancer screenings that took place compared to previous years. That's right, Stacey. The impact of this came up in our latest conversation, and what we know is that any improvements made towards screening and early detection could have a widespread impact. We were able to talk to Stand Up to Cancer CEO Dr. Sung Pabletti and cancer rebel and patient advocate Matthew Zachary about screenings, the impact of COVID-19, and more. Let's listen in. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Sung Pobledi and Matthew Zachary. I'm really excited to have you on. Just so that we can make sure that our listeners have a chance to get to know you, can you both tell us about who you are and the organizations that you're affiliated with? Sure. Well, my name is Matthew Zachary. I'm a 25-year pediatric brain cancer survivor. I'm the founder of a group called Stupid Cancer, which is the largest young adult cancer group in the world for advocacy, support, education, and policy. I had a podcast before that word existed in 2007 with a radio show called The Stupid Cancer Show, which had 4 million listeners across 14 years and 500 episodes and 3,000 interviews. I exited in 2019, have a company now called Off Script Health, which is the largest 
podcast network in healthcare. And I'm the host of a show called Out of Patience with Matthew Zachary, which is the number one podcast in healthcare. Sung? Well, that's a little hard to follow. Um, my <laughs> name's Sung Pabletti, and I'm the CEO of an organization called Stand Up to Cancer. And very much like Matthew, um, and very different. You know, I started my career with a very specific interest in nursing, and that interest began when I was around 10 years old, and my aunt was diagnosed with stage three breast cancer. I visit her in the hospital every day during her treatment, and was really in awe of the healthcare providers delivering incredible care with such compassion. Witnessing that made me want to be a part of the field, and I wanted to be in service of others. So. I earned my bachelor's, my master of science, as well as my PhD in nursing from Rutgers, and then was invited to join the teaching faculty at the College of Nursing, which was a huge honor. And in the early days of my career, I lost so many people I loved and admired to cancer. I was shocked to learn the statistics. Just in the United States, it's one out of two men, one out of three women will be diagnosed with cancer in their lifetimes. So eventually I got to a point where I wanted to do something to send the tide of cancer. I joined Stand Up to Cancer in 2011, and I still look to the discipline of nursing in my day-to-day. The nursing profession shows in every aspect of my work from collaborating with teams of scientists and clinical trials, advocating for cancer patients and research to collaborating and fostering relationships with individuals, philanthropists and companies who donate their time and money to help fund research that ultimately helps save lives. Wow. Those statistics are shocking. And thank you for sharing so much of your personal journey as well. Matthew, can you tell me a little bit more about your journey and how you got to be interested in this field? Well, I was kind of sucked into it by accident at no one's intent or interest. Uh, I was a film composer and concert pianist for 10 years through middle school, high school, and college. And I was going to go to USC and study with the late Jerry Goldsmith and Hans Zimmer to be the next John Williams, said me at famous last words, 21 years old. And in the summer of 95, I was my left hand stopped working. I got headaches. I was misdiagnosed for six months, as is typical for anyone that isn't, you know, of normal age of getting cancer. Not that there's a normal age, but over 70 years old. And they found a tumor in my brain, and they said, you'll be dead in six months, but let's hope you're not, and all sorts of fancy, dramatic stuff that sounds like I'm telling someone else's story at this point. And long story short, I didn't die. Spoiler alert. I did not get to be John Williams, you know, second coming that I wanted to be. And I found myself living the 1990s as if I had died. I just happened to be alive. And this was the 90s. We can get into this when the words survivorship and caring about the person, they didn't exist. I kind of forgive the 90s for all of that. But it dawned on me that when I was made aware of Livestrong, which is my first sort of incubation into what is a cancer advocate, uh, someone asked me, how'd you like to be a cancer advocate? I said, what's a cancer advocate? And they said, well, let's try to make sure that the next year doesn't go through the same crap that you went through in 1995. And I was like, aha, I'm going to be an advocate now. And I quit my entire career. My plan B career was in advertising. I quit the whole career and I joined Livestrong and learned what it meant to do policy and advocacy and medical affairs and whatnot. And that's when I decided to start Stupid Cancer and become the voice of Gen X in cancer because no one really had a sense of what to do when you weren't on Medicare or in pediatrics. And that was what I stood for 
uh, for 15 years, and I still stand for that. So, I, again, I was kind of uh, sucked into the club that no one asked to join, but I made the most of it and made a lot of family friends. Wow. I'm so inspired by both of your stories because it's very clear that service is a component in why you are where you are today and the work that you continue to do and giving voice to people that fall into that gap, like you're talking about, to make sure that they feel like they have a community and they can be guided by somebody is really incredible. So thank you both for doing the work that you do. Sung, I wanted to ask you about your background in cancer research and if you could tell us a little bit about the research that Stand Up to Cancer does. Certainly. Uh, prior to joining Stand Up to Cancer in 2011, I served as a director of clinical and translational programs at the American Association for Cancer Research. I also previously served as the vice president of clinical operations for a subsidiary of Fresenius and as executive director of the Oxford Health Plans Foundation. And I continue my long-standing relationship with Rutgers University, where I serve on the faculty now as a visiting associate professor. So I focused on patient outcomes, disease management, and health services research while bringing innovation and groundbreaking initiatives to evolving nonprofit and corporate healthcare environments. And all of my earlier experience laid the groundwork for my role at Stand Up to Cancer. Stand Up has changed the culture of cancer research by mandating collaboration, cooperation, and real-time communication among the scientific community and accelerating the groundbreaking projects that can get new therapies to patients quickly and save lives now. I cannot express more how important this acceleration is. The normal drug development time can go from 7, 10, 15 years. And when you need therapies today to save lives now, that acceleration is so very much needed. And StandUp is known for our unique research model that brings together the best minds to collaborate, innovate, and share ideas. We're now in our 13th year. We are a full-fledging teenager, and we fund more than 2,000 talented investigators working on multidisciplinary and multi-institutional projects with a focus on translational and clinical research. So when you think about the dream teams and research teams that we've created. You know, this unique programs are, are focused on key areas with the goal of making the biggest impact for the cancer field as a whole. We have physicists, mathematicians, engineers, computer scientists working with cancer researchers. And our interception teams are focused on finding and attacking cancers at its earliest stages when it's easiest to treat cancers. If you think about the fact that we fund and work on over 87% of all cancer types being researched in our portfolio, we've contributed to the development of nine new FDA-approved cancer therapies for breast, bladder, colorectal, ovarian, pancreatic, and prostate cancers, and difficult to treat leukemias in children and young adults. So talking about drug development, in 13 short years, we've had nine contributions to FDA approvals. 
Wow, that is incredible. Especially when, to your point about the statistics, this is something that almost everybody is going to be touched by individually or with someone that they know. And you answered the question I had about how you've seen this field evolve over time. Matthew, I'm curious from your perspective as a patient, how you've seen treatments and the experience of having cancer evolve over a period of time. Well, I'll just comment and piggyback because, you know, again, Sung and I are friends. We've known each other since she took the reins of stand-up in 2010. I became a card-carrying member of stand-up in 2007 when it was just fomenting for their first event in 2008. And I have kind of lived two lives running Stupid Cancer and being like the biggest fanboy of stand-up for all this time. I can't express to the listeners enough that if you don't already know it, the how a bill becomes a law of drug development is 10, 20 years. The FDA for years would approve three drugs. And then one day they approved like 72 drugs in one year. And then the the whole system went crazy. And it was the start of the end result of the Human Genome Project, which paved the way to nearly every piece of medicine today, because it's not about the cancer geography of I have this and I have this. It's like, it's the DNA geography of what's wrong with you. And how do we fix it based on your DNA? And what standup was able to do was instead of the science chasing the money, which has just been the way it's been since the War on Cancer Act. It was the money chasing the science. And I think I said that right, Sung. They were able to convene the vetting and casting of the latest and greatest minds in specific verticals that combine the efficacy of the genome. And to bring a drug to market, to get seven FDA approvals on your own in their space, it was unprecedented. I mean, just getting one one would have been enough. And they had seven and then nine. Just to again, be their fanboy, it can't be understated what they were able to do by turning everything from a completely convoluted fallopian tube to a nice straight pipe that just got things done. My perspective on this as a patient is we have better problems to have these days than we used to have when there was one thing for everybody. Now there's one thing for literally everybody body. (laughs) You know what I mean? Important distinction. Yes. Yes. Very important (laughs) distinction to say with that emphasis. The way we fund our projects was very much like how producers in Hollywood make big budget blockbusters because our co-founders wanted to raise as much money as possible, just like hiring the best director and best actors. They want the best scientists on these teams of research projects. And what they did was set milestone deliverables, and they said, okay, now go, go find a cure, go make a discovery for cancer. You know, Stand Up to Cancer is such a unique organization because we are literally at the intersection of high science and high entertainment. Stand Up to Cancer was launched in 2008 by nine extraordinary women, each working to bring entertainment industry resources to bear in the fight against cancer. And through this incredible support of our donors, the Entertainment Industry Foundation Board of Directors, the entertainment media communities, the celebrities, along with our extraordinary scientific advisory committee members, where can you Go to an organization where you may be sitting next to a Nobel laureate and an Academy Award winner having a conversation. And cancer touches everyone. It doesn't matter who you are, how smart you are, how rich you are, how famous you are. And it's something that brings all of us together. I was witness to a wonderful conversation 
with Jim Allison and an Academy Award winner where they were both extremely profoundly touched by cancer. And for them, you know, to have a conversation about that was very moving. Two very different individuals from two different worlds connected by their profound loss. And they were talking about, well, what can you do? What can I do to change the way cancer is being treated today? And it was powerful. It sounds like it. And just the ability to sit at that intersection and kind of guide everyone together and make sure that you're collaborating and working across sectors is really what it requires, I think, to solve something as big and wicked as this. I'm wondering about a survey that was conducted recently on behalf of the Cancer Screen Week initiative. And if you can talk a little bit about that partnership, what the survey is, and any of the outcomes that were related to that work. Cancer Screen Week is a public health initiative to increase awareness and foster understanding of the potentially life-saving benefits of early cancer detection and prevention. The goal of the initiative is to help save more lives through cancer screenings, particularly in underserved populations. The initiative was founded in 2017 by Stand Up to Cancer, Genentech, the American Cancer Society, and Optum. Callie, as you can hear from everything that I've talked about thus far, Stand Up to Cancer's DNA is collaboration, cooperation, and communication. And this specific movement to make more cancer patients long-term survivors is really through the power of early detection. Cancer Screen Week is held the first week of December and will take place this year from December 6th to the 10th. And you mentioned the uh, survey, a survey that was conducted by Cancer Screen Week. During the start of the COVID-19 pandemic in 2020, health officials recommended stay-at-home orders for individuals across the country. And as a result, there has been a substantial decline in cancer screening. During the peak of the pandemic in mid-2020, there were an estimated 9.4 million fewer breast, colorectal, and prostate cancer screenings done due to widespread lockdown and individuals' fears of going to a healthcare facility. The 2020 survey found that pandemic resulted in nearly one in four American adults missing their routine cancer screening tests, and two-thirds of them made a personal decision to delay or cancel screening tests for various reasons. For many decades before the pandemic, factors like lack of insurance, limited access to care, and economic inequality disproportionately impacted medically underserved communities. We know people in these communities are less likely to receive preventive cancer screenings and less likely to receive an early stage diagnosis. COVID-19 has really worsened social determinants of health by creating additional challenges, such as unemployment, delays or lack of access to health appointments or being at higher risk of COVID-19 infection or complications. I mean, this was indeed a perfect storm for what could really go wrong. And I see this as a call to action. We must do everything we can to make sure people stay up to date with their cancer screenings, while also finding ways to increase the number of screenings 
that would typically happen in a non-pandemic environment. And think about it. If you are able to detect cancers early, you have a better chance of survival. For instance, colorectal cancer, early detection, you have nine out of 10 chance of survival. Detected late, one out of 10 survival. I mean, I think that really brings that home. And I'm wondering about kind of going back to this COVID-19 impact. Do we know what the outcomes are of delayed screenings on diagnosis, treatment, and survival? We will see that tsunami effect in a couple of years when we see a higher diagnosis of the late stage cancers. Wow. And I think that also speaks to how important it is, just that year of a potential gap and, you know, seeing the outcomes by having a later stage diagnosis. Let's talk a little bit more about cancer screening. Can you share with us what does that mean and what cancers can we screen for? We have incredible tools to help us screen for certain types of cancers, including skin, lung, breast, cervical, colorectal, and prostate cancers. And We haven't even gotten to the subject of multi-cancer early detection tests that are going to be coming soon. But women and men who are at average risk for breast cancer can get a mammogram starting at age 45. There are at-home screening tests for colorectal cancer, as well as other tests like the colonoscopy. People at average risk can begin these tests at age 45 as well. Screening for cervical cancer with the pap test should begin at around age 25. For skin cancer, it's important to know your skin, talk with your doctor about unusual moles or marks on the skin that change in size, shape, or color. And we all know you can't look at your back. Have your loved one, have your partner check out your back. With prostate cancer, the decision to be screened should be made after talking with your doctor and getting information about the uncertainties, risks, and potential benefits of prostate cancer screening. So there are a number of factors that can go into how often someone should be screened. Genetics, race, ethnicity, and family and personal health history can play a role in the recommended screening frequency. People should share their family health history with their healthcare provider in order to receive the best screening recommendations. Hmm. So it sounds like partnering with providers to understand what's best for you when we talk about individual health is the best also for screening. I want to also talk about the fear and anxiety that people may have. I know that I have, even though I'm fairly healthy, just the idea sometimes of going to the doctor can feel very overwhelming, but also the potential to hear some news that might be really damaging or have other kinds of impacts. So I'm wondering from both of you, what kinds of tips or resources you would have for folks who maybe want to get started or realizing from this conversation that they need to be screened and what you might say to somebody who's feeling some of that fear or anxiety? You know, the 2,200 individuals that we surveyed for Cancer Screen Week, you know, this is exactly what they talked about. The barriers like anxiety, fear, knowledge gaps are keeping many from taking action to get screened. And according to the survey, four out of 10 respondents felt that it's still at least somewhat risky to see a doctor or get a cancer screening because of COVID. Two thirds of the respondents find cancer screening scary because of what they may find. 
and nearly 90% of those surveyed are unaware of what age people should start screening. So you're right. I think it's coupled with partnering with your healthcare providers to better understand your screening guidelines and also going to websites like cancerscreenweek.org, which has online resources where people can find information about cancer screening. And I have to say, just going back to what individuals are scared of, it's those three words no one wants to hear. You have cancer. It seems like a death sentence and it is definitely overwhelming, but with early detection, it can be more manageable and we have to change the culture of how our healthcare delivery has focused so strongly on treatments instead of prevention and early detection. So I take the sort of the consumer patient perspective on this and clearly no one wants anyone to get cancer if it's possible for them not to. And oftentimes cancer's kind of just been bad luck and it's always going to be bad luck for a certain amount of people. That's just the way life is. It's hard to be apathetic about that, but it, that's just, if you want to go full data, that's data. But sort of the running talk in how patients are talking about this today, actually, let me preface this. People only care about the sky falling when it's fallen on them. And it's really easy for advocates to forget that because it's our job to make sure the next us doesn't go through the same crap that we went through. So convincing people the sky might fall on them one day is very difficult when human nature is either fight or flight. And I don't want to know because I don't want to know is just going to be the way some people deal with it. You can lead a horse to water as a metaphor. And with only, I think, 9% of the country in at risk because their family members had it, they're probably more aware that they should be taking care of themselves because they've already been scared. The sky kind of came close to falling on them. But things like Cologuard. Cologuard is poop on a stick. Okay. And send it in like 23andMe and you get your results. Oh. And it recommends a colonoscopy. If your poop on a stick comes back and says you should probably get a colonoscopy. Wow. And it's so less threatening then go get a colonoscopy or you're going to get cancer, which has been, you know, Katie, one of the founders of Standard of Cancer, a friend of mine, Katie Couric, name dropping, of course, on purpose because she's my hero, <laughs> is she, she went on the Today Show and got a colonoscopy live yeah. on television. I remember that. And it created like the Couric effect. <laughs> and here we are now, you know, 20-something years later, and we're still in this place, COVID notwithstanding, where people just don't want to know. And yet here's the thing you can do in the privacy run home. Send it in like a 23 and mere ancestry, and it comes back and says, yeah, you should probably get a colonoscopy, and here's a coupon to go get a colonoscopy. Yeah. It's a very different way to think about it from a consumption perspective, and I think that is going to help destigmatize this idea of screenings when you make it more accessible in the way you buy handbags and cars. Yeah, I feel like you're also helping me <laughs> manage my own anxiety about it, so that makes a lot of sense. And um, just hearing about the importance and the impact of early screening and detection and how meaningful that can actually be. And so I, I feel like a lot of what you're talking about, Matthew, is also patient engagement. And I'm wondering what that means to you. And then um, I'd love to hear from you, Sung, what that means to you as well. So patient engagement in this decade is very different than it used to be. I'm going to put in the plug for a documentary we released this year called The Cancer Mavericks, which I actually partnered with Stand Up to Cancer on. It tells their origin story in episode six. And 
patient engagement used to just be, hey, we're dying. Can you pay attention to us? We exist. And then it was like, hey, we're not dying, but we're not living. Can you pay attention to us because we exist? And then it's like, hey, we're not just white people. Can you pay attention to us? We're not just exist. And now it's finally like we're broke and we're individual and the medicine for each one of us. And what does that really mean? And cancer is now consumer culture, thanks to stand-up, thanks to pop culture, you know, thanks to Family Guy and all these ways that cancer has become like comical and humorous and Society is not unaware of it anymore. I think we've ended the age of awareness in the traditional sense of, hey, did you know things are pink and breast cancer? We're done with that. Who doesn't know at this point? What it means now is what is the consumerification of awareness, of engagement, of speaking to people in peer-to-peer terms, the good parts of social media? And I'll preface that as there are some good parts of social media that peer-to-peer matters so much more. It's almost, it's not replacing, but it's now tantamount to medical education and TV commercials and the ways that we are communicated to by the healthcare system. It's how we communicate with each other about our experiences in the healthcare system. So focusing on the human experience first and then the actual clinical issues they're facing and the underlying issues they're facing second is where I really foresee the next 10 years in what patient engagement would mean from the advocate and the media community. Amazing. Sung, what are your thoughts? Well, I want to take a different slice. I want to talk about patient engagement in terms of cancer research. Firstly, it's important to engage patients in the research process from the laboratory to the bedside to bridge the gap between research and cancer patients, families, and caregivers. We learn very quickly through our dream team approach, involving patients and embedding patients into these research teams. It brought the human element to cancer research, ensuring that the needs of the patients were always top of mind. You know, one of the things that I I remember at one of our review team meetings was a basic scientist who said, thank you so much for allowing advocates to be part of the team. They come visit me and I realize why I'm doing what I'm doing. And it makes me want to work more quickly to find a cure. Secondly, we work with many community advocacy organizations on patient engagement initiatives. One of the examples that we're currently working on uh, is with the Black Women's Health Imperative and their Project TEACH initiative that empowers Black women through education and outreach to participate in and effectively engage with researchers and clinicians to increase participation of Black women in cancer clinical trials. And lastly, from a broader perspective, I would say patient engagement includes increasing awareness about cancer clinical trials and improving health literacy for the general patient population. It is peer-to-peer. That is one of the most effective opportunities. That's why Project Teach and having advocates embedded into teams has been so successful. It's cancer patients who are considering clinical trials, having the opportunity to talk to someone that has gone through that same journey. 
Wow. I mean, so much of what you're describing is just an equitable way to be thinking about these things in inclusive product design. And of course, like the cultural dimension, like you're talking about of having the connection between people who are impacted and people who are doing the work. I also hear you touching on something that I wanted to ask about, which is about the differences or needs across different socioeconomic statuses or racial ethnic groups. Like how do those things impact awareness and advocacy efforts? It impacts every aspect of the cancer world, from awareness to screening to research and patient care. You know, I want to address your question by walking you through a case study. It's a real-life case study that we just went through with Stand Up to Cancer, Um, and it's very relevant for today. We know we need to increase colorectal cancer screening in the medically underserved communities. And how we went about doing that will answer your question. Health equity as well as cancer interception and prevention are significant areas of focus for stand-up to cancer in our donors. We have a critical opportunity to reduce the impact of colorectal cancer that has made in our country. To that end, we recently announced a new colorectal cancer health equity dream team, and we've identified three stand-up to cancer zones. And we hope, we hope to expand to other cancers and make all of the United States one big stand-up to cancer zone. But these three zones, which include greater Boston, Los Angeles, and great tribal communities in South Dakota, they were selected because of their low colorectal screening rates. And, you know, right outside of major zones like Boston, they may have 90% screening rates, but if you go across the train tracks, all of a sudden in the underserved communities, the screening rates drop to 46% or, or lower. So we wanted to make certain that we not only raise awareness about colorectal cancer screening, but we wanted to provide free screening tests for individuals that needed screenings. And of course, follow them across the cancer journey. Individuals in this zone will be able to get a colonoscopy for free, and then should they need cancer treatment, we'll also follow them and make certain they get the right treatment for their uh, diagnosis. It's, you know, engaging the community, the advocacy organizations within these zones, it's what's making this heavy lift possible. And it's a perfect example of how patient engagement, advocacy, and research can unite synergistically to make a difference. That's exactly right. And I wanted to ask you all this as a last question before we move into the lightning round, which is what other recent trends or initiatives are you seeing that make you feel excited or hopeful? I'm going to say the silver lining of the pandemic has been warp speed, where science moved at lightning speed to develop the COVID vaccine. And most importantly, We're now understanding the power of moving tests and treatments to the patient's home and putting patients at the center of care. It makes a huge difference for individuals that still have to take care of their children. That 
can't get a ride to and from the institution. It's just mind-blowing to think about the fact that we, because of this pandemic, we're now focusing how to get treatment to the patient's home. And I love, love, love this trend. I'll put it in terms of, again, I'm a consumer guy, but like when TVs used to weigh 70 pounds and be the size of a Volkswagen, and then they became like crazy flat and the pictures look really great. Everyone wanted one. We didn't realize how good it could be. What the pandemic did was take something that no one really cared about or did, which is called, you know, telemedicine, telehealth, actually, which is just, you know, internet, <laughs> internet medical care. And it was like when PayPal accepted credit cards and no one would trust it. And now everyone buys stuff on, on Amazon, you know, the pandemic forced telehealth to be a thing. It changed the whole country. It changed the world. But to Sung's point, yes, telehealth, bringing things to where people already are. Don't force us to go there when we have to. Try to work with us before we need to be there. Again, the next 10 years are going to be so much more interesting than the last 50 because we had to climb this massive hill to get here to have what I started out with, all these better problems to have. And that there are better problems to solve now because a lot of this goes back to good old-fashioned retail. And when it is in the interest of consumer supply chain, it's going to happen way more quickly. Yeah. Those have been major themes throughout all of our conversations this season is just meeting people where they're at and human-centered care. So I completely agree that it feels like the industry is moving in that direction and it's long overdue. All right. Well, where can our listeners find both of you? Okay, so I'm putting in a plug for the Cancer Mavericks documentary, a 50-year history of the people that changed the planet for the better and got us to where we are today with the better problems to have. CancerMavericks.com or search for Cancer Mavericks wherever you listen to your podcasts. And the Big Screen Podcast, which is the 50-year history of cancer screenings, how COVID messed it up, and exactly what I've talked about on the show, how the next 10 years look brighter than ever because of diagnostics and consumer retail. And my show, Out of Patience, just search for Matthew Zachary wherever you listen to podcasts. And you can find us at standuptocancer.org. All right. So the final thing that we'll do is the lightning round, which is where I'll ask a couple questions and then you all can respond personally or professionally in just short snippets. So my first question for both of you is what drives your passion for what you do? Curiosity. Strategic hostility. Ooh. Who is someone who's inspired you or had the biggest impact on who you are today? Jacques Cousteau. Steve Jobs. What is giving you hope right now? For me, I think it's the unprecedented speed in which we're generating and gathering knowledge for benefit of patients. A cockeyed pessimism that the world ain't that bad. Beyond what we've already discussed, did you have any aha moments or any further clarity during the pandemic or as a result of the pandemic? For me, it's warp speed and to utilize that sense of urgency to cure cancers, I think that would be really incredible. That it shouldn't take a pandemic for that to happen, but it's nice to know it can happen if it needs to. And finally, what's something that you're currently rethinking or reconsidering? I, I think I touched upon this a little bit. It's how healthcare is being delivered today. We need to put patients at the center of care, making screenings, treatments more convenient. Go to where the patients are and not be limited in our current brick and mortar approach to care delivery. There have only been four consumer health revolutions in this country since 1971 when the National Cancer Act was passed. That being the first one, 
the National Coalition for Cancer Survivorship's founding in 86 being the second one, the breast cancer uprising in the 1990s being the third, and the young adult cancer movement being the fourth. And what keeps me up at night is that we're in need of a fifth. And everything we're talking about today paves the way for that fifth consumer health revolution to force the next decade to be what we demand it to be because we have the right to survive on our terms with dignity. Thank you both. Amen. Yeah, I had chills when you said that. Thank you both so much for joining me. It was a joy and a pleasure. Thank you so much for the opportunity. That was a really great interview, Callie. The one thing that really stuck out for me was just around the pandemic and the impact that it has had on people not getting screened. So my concern is around kind of what are those numbers going to look like of folks who have late stage cancer in a few years? It's hard to say, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. And I think that just underlines the importance of what Matthew and Dr. Pobletti were talking about with how important it is to do the preventative screenings and make sure that people are educated on how important that early detection really can be. Definitely. And it reminds me, while you didn't get into all the survey findings Dr. Pobletti referred to, we have significant opportunity in supporting communities of color. And more specifically, Black Americans and people with Hispanic and Latin heritage. The study found they are just as aware of the importance of cancer screenings as their white counterparts, but they face unique barriers to screening. This data is important and can hopefully help target the work and education supported by Cancer Screen Week and all the partners involved. The other thing I was thinking about was how Stand Up to Cancer's work on accelerating research and drug development and how being able to work across sectors has really brought to light so many developments in this space, which of course has been another major theme in all of our episodes this season. That's right. And I really appreciated the passion both of our guests have both personally and professionally and how they use that passion to feel so much good. Please subscribe and tune in next time when we talk about consumerism and consumers playing a bigger part in their healthcare. Until then, thank you so much for listening. I'm Stacy Dove. And I'm Callie Chamberlain. And this is Until It's Fixed, a healthcare innovation podcast from Optum.